0: The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 14, Michael Stevens, Bug Fabricator. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement. A full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your narrator, John O'Connor author of the book Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. We have talked about retired CIA agent James McCord, around whom we suggest strong swirls of suspicion should have arisen. But when questioned by credulous senators enjoying their 15 minutes of televised heroism, McCord could not have been more emphatic In his story, without any pushback from these senators, no, he adamantly testified, the CIA had nothing to do with the burglaries. He angrily rejected, he said, the completely unsupported suggestions of Hunt and Hunt's lawyers that the case be defended as a lawful CIA operation. And no, he had never told D.C. intelligence officer Gary Bittenbender that the burglary had been a CIA operation. Bittenbender must have been confused because the D.C. officer knew McCord through his CIA liaison work. Yes, O'Brien was tapped on a call director from another telephone in another office via a line directed toward O'Brien's phone from elsewhere on the floor. This testimony is exactly what we would expect an undercover CIA agent to give when his operation was blown. Agents are supposed to lie. Certainly, the Senators had no taste for challenging someone whose testimony was roasting Nixon, and it was unclear that they were skilled enough to cross-examine him, even had they so wished. In the Senators' defense, they did not have the extremely thorough FBI file, nor had the CIA yet produced to the Senate the full scope of documents the Senate had requested. So there was only limited ammunition for a good cross-examination in any case. We mentioned earlier the odd testimony of McCord to the effect that he thought the burglaries were to be a national security operation. But yet no one had asked McCord exactly what an experienced national security agent like McCord thought was the national security purpose for listening to what McCord had supposedly told Baldwin to seek, quote, "hot political gossip," unquote. So, as McCord was being interviewed, first in closed Senate session beginning May 1973, then publicly shortly thereafter. There was no reason for the wider public to sense the deep CIA penetration into Watergate. If McCord was not admitting having been undercover, the FBI records were not yet available showing the Mullen contract. And if Hunt's CIA trial defense was abandoned, was there any other basis upon which the public could have sensed a suspicion of agency involvement? Those of you who have read the book or seen the movie All the President's Men should recall probably the most frightening episode in the story. It was mid-May 1973 when Deep Throat burst into the garage where Woodward was waiting, quivering and visibly shaking. Quote, everyone's life's in danger, unquote, he urged. Also, he told Woodward, beware of wiretapping. The CIA was desperate. According to Deep Throat, as relayed by Woodward, the CIA was worried less about Watergate itself than about what other evidence would then be discovered about other CIA activities. This, of course, is squarely consistent with the inferences we raise in this series. Woodward furtively hand-signaled, quote, CIA, unquote, to Bernstein after rushing to his apartment. Then the two hustled to the home of editor-in-chief Ben Bradley in the middle of the night, where they fearfully huddled in Bradley's backyard. They were terrified. While we obtained no resolution of this fearsome threat in the movie, the book of the two reporters, All the President's Men, assured us that nothing had come of this frightening incident and that after days of caution, the group had resumed normal activities. All of this may have made sense when most observers thought Deep Throat to be a principled White House insider without professional knowledge of the CIA and therefore the recipient of a false rumor. But once we learned that Deep Throat was in fact the head of the FBI's Watergate investigation, then we should have questioned whether Deep Throat really had bad information and irrationally relied upon it. Was this preternaturally savvy, cool, Mark Felt being needlessly hysterical? Not likely. So Deep Throat's now-revealed identity should give us pause and make us rethink that there was, in fact, nothing to justify Deep Throat's frightened warning. Of course, if the CIA was so concerned institutionally that it was contemplating murder to keep certain secrets, then two conclusions may be warranted. First, that the CIA was involved in Watergate. Second, that Watergate, as we hypothesize here, was just the tip of the iceberg of illicit CIA domestic activities. And indeed, the whole purpose of Watergate was to legitimize those activities. If Watergate was so important to the agency that it risked the illegal Operation Mud to intimidate Tattletail Jack Anderson from preventing the operation, even to the point of mulling his murder, certainly the CIA would consider murder to squelch exposure after the operation had been carried out and blown, as it was here. Thus, not irrationally, McCord thought, as he was proceeding to arraignment, that the CIA would claim the presidential authorization so easily proven in Watergate. But the agency now calculated that, with a bright spotlight on Watergate, questions would be asked about prior similar CIA operations, which would then be the agency's death knell. In other words, that would be quite consistent with the rationale that Deep Throat gave to Woodward that night for the CIA-threatening behavior. Put differently, if the CIA connection were to be discovered in, say, 1990, the haze of memory, summoned after several succeeding administrations, could allow the agency to claim with a straight face a broader presidential legitimation of prostitute monitorings. In short, all would have gone well in that hypothetical 1990 discussion, perhaps an oversight hearing by a congressional committee. But in May 1973, questioning would be too searching, and events and documents would be too fresh in memory and availability to make a larger claim of broad authorization beyond Watergate. In short, the danger loomed of discovery of illegal operations of many years' standing. Does our theory make sense? If we look at the book, All the President's Men, page 313, it seems that our theory is right on the money, because there, Woodward states that the CIA was not so much afraid of what might be uncovered in Watergate, but where such inquiry would lead as to other CIA operations. We will quote our pair of intrepid reporters here about Deep Throat's frightened warning about the CIA in May, that's May 16 and 17, 1973. I'm going to quote a few passages from All the President's Men by Woodward and Bernstein, some of them from Woodward himself, others typed out statements of what Deep Throat had told him. And this is in their garage meeting of May 16 and 17, of that evening of 1973. And I quote, Deep Throat had told them they could meet earlier, say about 11 p.m. Cabs were easier to find at that hour, and the trip did not take as long as usual. But Deep Throat was in the garage when Woodward arrived. He was pacing about nervously. His lower jaw seemed to quiver. Deep Throat began talking, almost in a monologue. He had only a few minutes. He raced through a series of statements. Woodward listened obediently. It was clear that a transformation had come over his friend. Woodward had dozens of questions, but Deep Throat held up his hand. That's the situation, he said when he had finished. I must go this second. You can understand. Be well. I'll say it. Be cautious. That night, Woodward asked Bernstein to come over to his apartment after Woodward had met with Deep Throat. When Bernstein got there, Woodward acted very secretively, closed the drapes, put on a piano concerto on his phonograph. And in the book, it said, Woodward put his finger over his lips to indicate silence. At the dining room table, Woodward typed out a note and passed it to Bernstein. Now, I'll read you what the note said here. Everyone's life's in danger. So obviously that had come from Deep Throat. Now another typed phrase that Woodward showed Bernstein that he typed out that night says as follows, Deep Throat says that electronic surveillance is going on and we had better watch it. Then Bernstein signaled that he wanted something to write with. Woodward gave him a pen. Who is doing it, Bernstein wrote. C-I-A, Woodward mouthed silently. Bernstein was disbelieving. While the Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto played on, Woodward began typing as Bernstein read over his shoulder. I'm just going to read some of the things that Woodward typed that night while they were in Woodward's apartment. The covert activities involve the whole U.S. intelligence community and are incredible. Deep Throat refused to give specifics because it is against the law. The cover-up had little to do with Watergate, but was mainly to protect covert operations. So these passages say, in essence, what we've been postulating. If outed now, the CIA could claim presidential authorization for Watergate, but not for the long parade of prior horribles. So the passage is quite consistent with our theory, and in fact, strongly probative. But what particular event spurred the gut-wrenching garage warnings? Since Mark Felt was head of the FBI investigation, we would expect to find the answer in FBI 302 files. 302 reports are the reports of interviews of FBI agents. In the 302 reports dated May 12 and May 14, 1973, the FBI detailed the fabricator of bugs purchased by McCord, some still on order, and that that fabricator had come out of the cold to seek FBI protection. The bug fabricator related to the FBI that he believed his life was being threatened in the ominous calls he was receiving. So let's stop right there. We now have a bug fabricator coming in to the FBI saying his life is in danger. A federal investigator, whom we feel likely was Mark Felt, assessed that the best way to protect this bug fabricator was to reveal his story in print. So in fact, on March 14 and March 16, 1973, That's two days after the two FBI reports. Chicago Today printed two chillingly sensational stories about the knowledge of the bug fabricator, liberally quoting an, quote, investigator, unquote, as the source of the story. These two stories, following up the two FBI reports, should have been, but were not, nationally explosive but that was because they never made it into the Post headlines, or even in its buried inside news, or for that matter, even into the New York Times, the only other paper besides the Post, reporting it all on Watergate, not as extensively, of course, as the Post. In short, even though the Post, through Woodward, had the chilling story direct from Deep Throat, it never made print. What was this story, and why should it have upended the conventional view of the Watergate scandal? First, The Chicago Today stories revealed that the bug fabricator, a government-approved contractor, could only legally deliver devices if approved by a government intelligence agency. Now, to this bug fabricator, McCord claimed to be acting in his role as an agency employee, dealing with an approved government vendor. So merely the fact that the bugs were ordered from this fabricator strongly suggested CIA involvement, since the bug fabricator could only deal with an approved intelligence agency. Maybe we could speculate the bug contractor could have assumed without proof McCord's agency bona fides, given his knowledge of McCord's previous experience with the CIA. But the contractor, the Chicago Today story said, publicized under the assumed name of Michael Stevens, asked and received from McCord a letter on CIA stationery attesting that the order was for a CIA operation. Now, here I'm talking about the Chicago Today stories that followed up on the FBI interviews, just so we're not confused. It's an investigator talking to the Chicago Today. Now, how would we know that this letter from the CIA attesting to McCord's bona fides, how do we know that it wasn't a phony letter? We know that because the bug fabricator going under the assumed name of Michael Stevens had followed up on McCord's letter and had called the agency, and he spoke to one of his close contacts. The close contact verified that McCord, using his operational alias, could order the bugs as a CIA agent, and that the bugs were for a CIA project. This is pretty strong proof that the bugs were for a CIA project and the McCord was a CIA contractor. But there's even more. McCord still had on order with Stevens three bugs, costing $18,000, which were set to uplink to a CIA satellite used to monitor Vietnam double agents. For younger listeners, satellites were extremely rare in 1972, and neither the White House nor the Republicans had any satellite capability. It was rare for anyone to have satellite capability in those days. But the CIA did, and the bugs under contract, a custom order with Stevens, were geared to transmit to this satellite. So there's no other way to explain the ordering of these satellite-linking bugs other than as part of a CIA operation. This was in the Chicago Today articles. This revelation should have been a sensational story in the Washington Post clearly available through Mark Felt and through Chicago Today. But nothing whatsoever about Stevens was printed in the Post, a story known to the Post not only through its clipping service, giving them the Chicago Today stories, but also through Deep Throat. The Post had firsthand knowledge of the dire garage warnings from the head of the investigation, Deep Throat, whose prestigious position was not mentioned in the Chicago Today stories. So the credibility given to these threats by Deep Throat and felt, should have assured us that Stevens' fear was rational. Even more disturbingly, Stevens had related both to the FBI and Chicago today that in 1972 December, Dorothy Hunt, wife of Howard Hunt, was traveling to Chicago to pay Stevens $10,000. That Dorothy Hunt was a hush-money courier appears to be admitted, verified by no less an authority than James McCord himself in his Senate testimony. It may well have been that the $10,000 was not true hush money at all, but rather money designed to persuade Stevens to testify to support Hunt's planned CIA defense. But in any case, the money was intended for Stevens, Stevens told the FBI. If you recall in the crash of the plane, Dorothy Hunt was found dead and $10,000 in cash was found with her. We may question whether in December 1972 she was hushing a CIA witness or encouraging the witness to talk. But let's put that aside for the moment. It could have been either one. Other evidence added to that offered by Stevens is even more scary. Not only was Dorothy Hunt's body found with $10,000 when a United Flight crashed, but also on board was a young D.C. reporter, Michelle Clark, who may have been, we infer, traveling to Chicago for this very story, one to be written in cooperation with Dorothy Hunt. Witnesses had seen the two talking together before boarding the flight. Please recall that in early December 1972, Howard Hunt was still planning an energetic CIA defense. Whatever inference we draw here about the purpose of the payment of the $10,000, it is unmistakable that Dorothy Hunt's cash was for the purpose of paying Stevens. But why would Stevens need to be paid off by the White House, as were other witnesses? After all, no one at the White House had known of Stevens, and no federal investigators were questioning Stevens in December 1972. To the White House in December, it was already beyond dispute that CRP money had paid for the bugs. So why would the White House care about silencing Stevens? It wouldn't, is the simple answer. But the CIA certainly would. And that is the source of Stevens' fear. Additionally, we note that the serial numbers of the cash found with her body after the plane crash did not match any known White House slush fund monies. So if Dorothy Hunt was carrying money for Stevens, as he so understood, it was to hush up a CIA witness. That makes sense. This is what we had earlier thought to wit, that Dorothy Hunt was traveling to Chicago to keep a CIA witness from unloading on the agency, which makes some sense before we reflect further. We can certainly agree that for whatever reason Dorothy Hunt was carrying money to Stevens, it was in some fashion connected to the agency and not to the White House. Only makes sense. Stevens, in short, had nothing to add to White House guilt. Let us note again that Dorothy Hunt was at the time preparing with her husband Howard his CIA defense, mainly so that he could continue his life with Dorothy. So we can infer, he was likely at odds with the agency in December of 1972 regarding this defense, and that would not have escaped the agency's notice. And Dorothy had just been fired from her job at the Spanish embassy, presumably as an undercover CIA agent. So were Hunt and his wife really working hard to shut up a CIA contractor to protect the agency? The answer to be inferred from circumstantial evidence is that it only makes sense that Dorothy Hunt was traveling to Chicago to enlist Stevens as a witness in her husband's defense, perhaps to be transcribed and authenticated by the reporter, Michelle Clark, the reports of whom would act as an insurance policy guaranteeing Stevens would stay alive. To be sure, we note, the presence of the reporter may be a red herring because her parents' home was in Chicago, and perhaps her presence on the flight could have been coincidental. In any case, it is clear that the CIA had no influence over White House hush money, so that it is highly doubtful that this, in fact, was White House money that Dorothy Hunt was bringing to Stevens, and an analysis of the serial numbers seemed to validate that inference. Was it mere coincidence that Dorothy Hunt was killed as her husband was preparing a CIA defense? Is it mere coincidence that a reporter who Dorothy Hunt knew was also on board? doesn't it make sense that Stevens could have been a powerful witness for Hunt's CIA defense? From this remove, all of this seems obvious, even though not yet explored by any researcher or commentator to any great extent. The only defense offered to the blockbuster Chicago Today allegations was thin. McCord's new CIA-connected lawyer, Bud Fensterwald, told the paper regarding Stevens that his client simply, quote, picked his name out of a phone book, unquote, as the bug supplier. Of course, we can see today that that statement makes no sense. You don't pick a bug fabricator out of the phone book, especially one dealing with these highly sensitive and sophisticated bugs, especially one that links to a satellite. The $10,000 in cash, said Fensterwald, was in part to pay Stevens for the bugs, in part for use to buy a motel. It seems unlikely that one would buy a motel with cash and without a written contract, and that certainly doesn't seem like a lot of money to buy a motel. So not very convincing as to the motel, and also not convincing that Dorothy and Howard Hunt would care about whether the contractor had been stiffed when they faced a life without income and mounting legal bills. Were they really using cash to pay off a debt to the bug fabricator? Highly unlikely. If the United crash was a coincidence... The CIA was an extremely lucky organization because with that crash went a viable CIA defense that would put many in jail and without pension. The agency was also lucky that the head of the FAA, which would soon investigate the crash, was to be one Alexander Butterfield, formerly a White House aide who had revealed the Oval Office taping system to the Senate Watergate Committee. Butterfield, a former Air Force colonel, was movie star handsome, was on his way to becoming a general when he obtained an unimpressive administration job in the White House, immediately retiring from the Air Force. If there was to be an appointment to the FAA helpful to the CIA, it would have been a man such as Butterfield, long suspected as having been an intelligence plant within the White House. Why, after all, would a person on his way to becoming a general resign abruptly to take this unimpressive post. The FAA, not surprisingly, after Butterfield headed the investigation, find any sabotage causing the crash. We are not here to opine on the cause of the United crash that killed at least one key witness who could confirm the CIA's involvement in Watergate but do think that the crash confirms the rationality of fears that Stevens harbored and the suspicions Mark Felt had of CIA involvement, and indeed confirms Deep Throat's reaction in the garage when his lips are quivering and he's talking excitedly. Deep Throat clearly gave credence to the fact that the CIA could be killing or threatening to kill people at this time. By May 1973, Dorothy Hunt was long dead, her death having been in December of 72 hunt was keeping his mouth shut as a defendant who had pleaded guilty in January of 73 and now wished to stay in good agency graces what was it that the cia would fear in May 1973 that might cause lives to be threatened as deep throat warned what would be clearly proven in May by Stevens, was that James McCord was working under an operational name for the CIA and ordered not only bugs planted in Watergate, but had on order additional satellite-linking bugs. And we also know that McCord had never told Liddy about ordering such bugs. I Remember, Liddy had been told by McCord that he had ordered one room bug. So, We believe that McCord's dealings with Michael Stevens proves beyond any doubt CIA complicity in Watergate, and as well a secret agenda hidden from Liddy and other Nixonites. Supporting the CIA's involvement in Watergate were the CIA's threats of murder and wiretapping of witnesses relayed to Woodward by the very experienced head of the FBI's Watergate investigation. If nothing else, we should see Deep Throat's frightened exhortations to Woodward on the night of May 16th and 17th, 1973, as being strongly corroborative of CIA involvement in Watergate, which would also serve to confirm our view of Operation Mud Hen as an intimidation of a possible whistleblower. This frightening episode also corroborates one other aspect of Watergate. Woodward and Bernstein chronicle this meeting and their fearful reactions to it. Yet it is beyond a doubt that the paper of record for Watergate, which won a Pulitzer Prize for its investigative journalism, failed to tell the public at the time anything about this horrendous tableau. It did not report, for example, that lives were being threatened by the CIA or that it looked like the CIA was involved in Watergate and as well had other skeletons in its closet that it was worried about being uncovered. In his Senate testimony, McCord testified, as he must, that the bug placed for O'Brien in the first burglary was a phone bug as opposed to a room bug and that the team never entered O'Brien's office. And of course, we doubt that there was even a bug put on O'Brien via the purported call director running from a phone near Oliver's office. That phone had never been listened to if, in fact, it was tapped. Since Liddy was adamant about not testifying, the Senate did not have his words with which to challenge key parts of McCord's testimony. Was McCord's fraud about O'Brien intended to fool the Nixon administration sponsors that O'Brien was the target? Has Liddy been corroborated that the target of the first burglary was to be O'Brien's office or O'Brien's phone? Pictures of the first burglary intended for White House consumption through Liddy showed O'Brien letterhead DNC documents displayed on a carpet by gloved hands, suggesting that the photos were taken by burglars on site where gloves would be worn. The pictures were seemingly trophy pictures meant to prove that O'Brien's office had been penetrated. However, The carpet upon which the documents placed was shag, of which, of course, there was none in the DNC offices. These photos, then, are set in stone markers of a burglary team effort to fool Liddy and his superiors that O'Brien's office was indeed the target of the first burglary and had been successfully entered. Before we leave this episode, let's keep in mind the question of whether the CIA had credibly been threatening lives. If so our theories of both CIA involvement in Watergate and a wider multi-year illegal domestic program monitoring prostitution would appear proven. So Stevens is a marker of McCord's activity outside Nixon channels. There are more markers to be discovered in coming episodes of The Mysteries of Watergate. Thank you for listening. I've just completed a book on the same subject entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.